This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. You are listening to 3RRR, and we're going to give you an hour of science now, so uh, strap yourselves in. If you haven't got a coffee, it's probably a good time to get it. It's going to be a heavy show. We've got some really full-on guests that we're going to talk to today, which is going to be great. And in the studio with me is Dr. Ailey. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It's been a while. It has been a while. I've been away a lot. And you've been travelling. I have. A lot of travel. Yeah, talking it's... to people about climate, no oh, doubt. Oh, my gosh. So many people. But it's been really productive. So. You know, planes damage the Yes, I know, but you know what? We're getting some good science out, so oh, uh, I, okay. I feel less guilty about less that. Less guilty about that. Mm. Dr. Ray, good morning. Morning, Dr. Shane. Has been less time since I've seen you a couple of weeks, I think. <coughs> Actually, you, no, you, I you was away because I was in Europe for, for work, and I was gave a plenary talk at a, a college conference about nanoparticles dancing around on surfaces, which was always fun. <laughs> yeah, a bit. Did um, you do an impression of those nanoparticles? It wasn't interpretive, wow. no. Um, and, uh But I'm so glad that I'm back before... Space month is over with, yeah. with the moon landing, uh, the anniversary of the moon landing and the amazing sets of guests. I've just been listening to the show going, Oh, I'm sorry I missed that week. Oh, I wish I could have been there. And, and, and so last night, it's just a warm up for the show. We went and saw the Apollo 11 documentary. Oh, at yeah, IMAX you mentioned that to at, me at, yesterday. At Melbourne Did Museum. you enjoy it? That was really good. Yes. Um, it was neat. It didn't beat people over the head with the science and, it wasn't overly narrated. It was really just the narration from Mission Control. And it was the footage they had. And it was the 70s. And some of it was grainy. But that didn't matter because you're like, well, it's grainy because they're doing this by hand out of the capsule as they're landing. Mm. And, mm. and it was really great. And, and there were things like I didn't know or, or remember. Like y- y- you hear Armstrong go back after they landed. They go, yeah, the autopilot was going to land us in a rocky crater. So... We had to fly it in manual for the last little bit mm. as we landed, and you're like, yeah. "Oh, that's that's because they had like you know 12 seconds of fuel left by eight. the time that yeah by the yeah, time they landed." It, wow. Yeah. So it was it was because when they when they skipped over that spot where they got to, there was a lot of boulders and crap. So you know it was it was very dicey as mm. to whether or not they could land there and. That's that's some fancy flying. Precision. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's why the, you know these 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 particular crew members were um, were the best. So you know, good well, luck. I liked the medical thing too when they're like, yeah. So just at takeoff, Armstrong's heart rate was like a hundred, and yeah, <laughs> and Aldrin's was eighty. Like these guys are. Yeah, yeah. They're drilled so much, they're calm. Yeah. It's just although in the land, I think if you look at the um, the heart rate for him during the landing, it was like it was like one eighty. Yeah. So it was like he was running a marathon. <laughs> but wouldn't you be? Yeah, you'd be freaking out. I suspect most of the hearts, you know, at NASA at the time on on the ground would just stop for a full minute, like as they were freaking out. But yeah, it's it's a great film. It's it's interesting. There's so many shows on at the moment that people can go and see. And I was really disappointed the other week because um, I, I saw that at the Sun Theater in Yarraville, where I grew up, uh, they had the right stuff, you yeah. know, with the music from Bill Conti. I was all excited, but I missed it. <laughs> it, was, it must have been on during the week. I, I thought, oh, I missed it. I, mm. I caught one program, and it's relevant to the show. It was um, it was on the Mercury program, mm. and it happened to be the episode about Gene Cernan's first spacewalk. Oh, yeah. You know, and you interviewed Gene Cernan here mm. when he had his documentary, Last Man on the Moon, and then he came to Australia Australian and mm. screened it in Melbourne. And, and you know, the movie that Gene Cernan said... He he had narrated it as saying, you know, we we there were no handholds, so his spacewalk mm-hmm. it was very difficult. He couldn't grab onto anything. He was outside for an hour and a half on the tether. What wasn't he was kind of modest about that. What this documentary suggested was 
He's on a tether for an hour and a half. And the mission rules say, if you can't get him back in, leave him. And it was him and the guy in the cockpit braced themselves and carefully pulled him in on the tether. Mm, mm. Cause they hadn't, cause nobody thought about handholds and zero yeah. gravity. Then. And just the control, the lack yeah. of control they had was quite surprising, I think, to them once they got there. So interesting stuff. Anyway, uh, we're going to talk more space later with our guests, uh, which is going to be cool, uh, talking about some of the, the cool technologies and so forth that are coming out of Australia. But before that, we're going to do some news. Dr. Ailey, what do you got? Yep. I'm going to flip gears. No, no space for me today. I'm going, uh, going to what I know, going to climate. Yeah. But that's because there's been a really, really interesting study come out this week uh, in the journal Nature. Um, and I do have to disclose that the uh, the <coughs> authors of this are actually colleagues of mine, so props yeah. to them. Very exciting. Um, <laughs> no but conflict. no, look, it's really, yep. really, really exciting work. And, um, I mean, this, this kind of concerns something that... Uh, we call well climate we call it climate of the common era or paleoclimate but it's not you know really really long time ago we're we're trying to work out what's happened in the last 2000 years you Mm. know we've only kind of had thermometers on this earth for kind of you know 100 150 years there's one central england temperature record that goes back about 400 years but apart from that really isn't much so we kind of have to work out what's happened to temperature in the past to put today in present day context um, by looking at what we call climate proxies. So okay. climate proxies are things like, uh, you know, counting rings on trees or looking at other elements of rings and trees, um, looking at uh, corals as well, do that as well. And there's other aspects. You can look at um, the isotopic signatures in these things as well, looking at stalactites and stalactites to try and understand how they um, formed and the rates at which they formed, things like that. Do ice cores work too? Ice cores, absolutely. Ice cores are fantastic, but of course they're only in, you yeah. know, cold regions. So, you know, when we put all of these things together, we can get a really nice global picture because, you know, we don't get ice somewhere, we don't get trees somewhere, but we put them together and we can get Mm. a nice picture. Mm. And people have looked at at all these things in the past and kind of said, oh, well, you know, we're kind of seeing, um, you know, these periods of cooling and these periods of warming. Um, The two most famous ones which people might have heard of is the Little Ice Age, Mm. um, which was, you know, a few hundred years ago, and then the medieval warm period, which is more like about a thousand years ago. But when people have looked at these different proxies, they kind of said, well, okay, it's... um, you know, we're seeing this warming, but, you know, here it's in kind of 1000 AD, but over here it's in 1400 AD. Oh, well, maybe one of these is wrong and maybe one of these, you know, same with the Little Ice Age as well. You know, they're kind of happening a bit far apart. But this new paper, what it's looked at is basically the, the what we call the synchronicity. How... Did these things actually occur together around the globe? Right. So they've grabbed all the records that they could possibly get and say, well, when we had this cooling, this supposed little ice age, which people talk about as a global phenomenon, did it actually happen around the world at the same time? The answer is no. Mm. It didn't. So uh, particularly in the case of some of the, the older ones, this medieval warm period, which which some people use um, incorrectly as an argument to, to talk about, oh, well, you know, climate in the past was as warm as today. Actually, it wasn't. It was cooler. But, um, you know, that, that happened. Well, yes, it did happen, but it looked like it actually happened at, at different times around the globe. So, you know, I'm talking several hundred years apart, yeah, yeah. So, not just so those years. aren't those aren't global changes. They're no. kind of a, a local area. That's right. Has, it's a real regional a, signature, okay. exactly. Mm. So in in one region, you might have had really strong warming in a thousand AD, but in another region, it was 1200 AD. And you know, and and some of the signatures are really strong in some places, but actually they're super weak in others. So the whole point of this is it's not a global 
change, mm. right? And it's not easy to predict. I mean, no. I, I suspect even if you think about some of the processes that we know well at the mm. moment, like um, El Nino, mm. for example, mm. I mean, these are these are very substantial changes mm. that happen, but they don't happen all over the world. No, they don't. So That's if we right. even look at that and we'd say, okay, there's these periods of drought, and you know, yeah. from California to Australia, you know, you, you see this, but yeah. then you go and you look in Siberia and no yes. El Nino. No, no that's right. Yeah. Exactly. So, so it's not unusual for such complex weather patterns to be oddly distributed around the world. No, absolutely. And yeah. and I think that's the entire point of this, Dr. Shane, is that when we compare that to what's happening today and we think about this current warming period, yep. this current warming period is exceptionally synchronous. In other mm. words, it's happening around the world everywhere altogether yep. because we know and understand the cause and that's, you know, human-induced climate change, right? Mm. But the point is that there was no... People have often touted that there was there must have been this other phenomena, whether it be kind of like right. an El Nino yeah, kind of yeah. thing that caused these global changes, so we're missing something, and, you know, maybe that's what's causing the current warming. Yeah. And this new paper shows that, well, actually it wasn't coherent yeah. around the globe, and so actually there isn't this big mechanism. No, but the, the interesting thing about that is if you, if you take that global change... Mm. And then you say, okay, what does that mean in local regions? Mm. And that's where you get the complexity. Absolutely. So you, you don't, you know, we can't say oh, everyone's just going to get warmer. It's like, no. well, actually, no. In, in some cases, you might have, you know, um, higher wind speeds or you might yeah. have more of this and more yeah. of that. That's it right. will be more more complicated that's and so right. forth. And, and there are there are pretty, <laughs> there's some scary prospects in that because some of the weather around the world, even just in the normal world, is pretty nasty. It's pretty nasty. I mean, just look at Europe at the yeah. moment, you know. Yeah. I mean, last week, Europe had its second record-breaking heat wave of the year. Second, I actually happened to be in France where it was Ooh. hottest oh, yeah. during the first. In, in June, we had, a, we had a conference in Toulouse right at that time. Um, it was hot. Yeah. <laughs> but right. the, the unusual thing about it was that it occurred in June. That's like a heat wave here, like the record-breaking, absolute smashing heat yeah. wave occurring in November, December. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, it's crazy. So, you know, last Thursday looks like England probably smashed its all-time temperature record. 38.7 in Cambridge. Oh, they must have almost died there. Yeah, yeah. I know. I mean, hasn't been, a... that hasn't been confirmed yet. So I mean, quite... the only ones that would survive are those who've been overseas. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. <laughs> but not only that, Paris. Yeah. You know, you know how bad 2003 was with that yeah. heat wave they had? Mm. I mean, you know, anywhere from thirty to 60,000 additional deaths attributed. Yeah. Paris beat that record... For maximum temperature by two degrees Celsius last week. Mm. Two. Yeah. Nasty. Mm. Mm. <laughs> well, no, thanks for that good news, yeah. Doctor. So great it's news. great. It's great to, you it's all great feel to hear. Fantastic it's great to hear. on a Sunday yeah. morning. <laughs> Doctor Ray, what do you got? Uh, Doctor Shane, I um I was looking for a news story that was somehow related to space. Good man. But um there's a lot of <laughs> stuff going on. So what I did want to find was there was an interesting discovery in in science last week about making a soft magnet. So, as you know, a, a permanent magnet made of iron normally, you, you know, it's not just the red one with the U-shape, but it permanently has a magnetic field in it. It After you, you can take, there's a lot of materials that are just um, <clears throat> paramagnetic, not ferromagnetic, where they, they're magnetic, but when you take the magnetic field away, like aluminum, uh, and the magnetic field goes away. And so magnets are things that persist with that magnetic field, with iron, they're a magnet unless you heat them up to something over called their Curie temperature, in which case they lose their magnetic mm-hmm. orientation. Yep. So magnets are solid, hard things, and we know that. And and so there's been experiments with trying to make soft materials magnetic. And in the 60s, NASA really discovered that with some liquids, by adding iron or iron oxide particles to them, they could make what's called a ferrofluid, which is a, a liquid that 
behaves or responds to magnetic fields. Um, they were doing this because they were looking at ways to pump and move fluids in zero gravity. Because if things don't drain out of a tank, how do you get all the liquid that's just floating around in a magnetic mm. field was, was one way to do that. What was interesting about these fluids was they, they, they make really fun-looking shapes. If you, you imagine you take iron particles and you put them in a magnetic field, they can make the top of water look spiky. You've probably seen it in a science museum before. and They're really neat materials. But the moment you take magnetic field away, they stop being magnets. And so researchers uh, from uh, University of Massachusetts, Amherst, uh, Berkeley, uh, and from China all work together and have created drops that are permanent magnets. Hmm. Uh, and they've taken what you could say are drops of one or two millimeters in size of toluene, which is an oil that doesn't dissolve in water, and they mix it up with, in, in the water part, they put tiny iron nanoparticles or iron, iron-like nanoparticles that um, are a little bit magnetic, and they added some soap, and it formed this crust around the oil drops. And so you have this crust of these tiny magnetic nanoparticles that are just jam-packed because they stirred them up and they used some soap to get them to stick there. And then they put these drops in a magnetic field, and they moved around, which yeah. isn't a surprise since we know the magnetic nanoparticles will move around. The amazing thing was when they turned the magnetic field off, the drops still behaved as... Permanent magnets. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and then they were drops and then they went, wait a minute, it's a drop, it's got this crust on it. I know. And they flattened them out and they made the drops look like cylinders so they kind of looked like bar magnets. And, and they're weak magnets and they persist until you, um, well actually, until you destroy the emulsion, you've actually got these little magnets. And so they're soft, shapeable, shapeable magnets. Mm. And well, that sounds cool. This really has the ability to be things like actuators and soft systems. And you go, where is that? And, the biggest field that they think they can have is, is in soft robotics. So robotics with soft gripping and grabbing. This is actually in a T1000. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but like a, a rubbery soft version of the T1000. Now I'm getting nightmares. <laughs> I just, and, uh, Most of my science knowledge comes from Terminator 2. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the liquid metal part. Yeah. But, uh, no, so, um, it, it's just, it, it has a really interesting implication because they realized if they take advantage of all the different types of microstructures or, or small things that you can make with oil and water. You can't, you can make drops. You can add a lot of drops. You can actually make something that kind of looks like a sponge. So they reckon they could probably make a spongy soft magnet. Mm. So a, a magnet that's like a block of sponge, but it's squishy. I mean, the, the potentials here for making permanent magnet materials that are soft really would allow them to do a lot more possibly in medicine and robotics. That's very cool stuff. Very cool stuff. You guys have gone heavy. I've got something real light for you, which I thought was fun. <laughs> uh, I thought, you know, we can't have everything heavy. And this was an article that I saw. It came out of some work uh, at the University of Texas. And they were looking at, they did this sort of um, systematic review of a huge number of different um, articles or studies, you know, something like f- over 5,300 of these studies. They looked at them to determine that if you take a bath 90 minutes before bedtime, on average, you'll get to sleep 10 minutes quicker. Bump nice. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway, it's, it's, a, it's interesting, and, it's, and it's, it was an interesting test because what they were looking at is the fact that your body temperature tends to drop a bit before you, you go to sleep. And, and if, if you can sort of change that artificially or you can at least calm that part of yourself down, the chances are you'll go to sleep a bit faster. And they, they did this study and showed that um, on average you would actually be falling asleep about 10 minutes quicker. Now, it depends on the person very much. So for me, I'm one of those people that takes, you know, takes me about, I'm like a, a 486 computer that takes a long time to shut off. Yeah. You know, it takes me ages to tune down and actually go to sleep really bad annoys the crap out of me mm. i know like my father 
like he will be asleep halfway through the sentence where he's telling you he's going to go to sleep. Like he's he's just off, and it drives me nuts. So if you're one of those people who, uh, you know, it takes a while to get to sleep, could be that the bath an Take hour and a half before. So how many studies did you say they looked at? Five thousand three hundred and twenty-two studies they reviewed. So you're telling but, me there's been five thousand three hundred and twenty-two studies of people looking to sleep, having baths. No, no. Why is it why is it ninety <laughs> minutes before? Because most people don't take cold showers. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Um, no, these studies were all related. to to sleep-related conditions. Okay. So they're all looking at things that happened to people where they weren't sleeping well or, you know, different drugs affecting sleep, all these different things. So then they pulled all that data together. There's not some bath sleep research no, there's center not, that not, we have. No, not the Institute of Bath Sleep. Yeah. Uh, probably doesn't exist. <laughs> it may exist. It may exist. Um, you know, I, I used to give a lot of crap to a particular cosmetics company that had an institute named after it. But uh, <laughs> Hey, I, I've, I've been to that. You yeah. know, <laughs> it, it's that not anymore. actually what you think. It's more like a display cabinet in the <laughs> front anymore <laughs> than an actual thing. Anyway, I don't do that anymore. I might get myself in trouble. But um, it, it's interesting because it looks at the the sort of the temperature requirements and they do have specific requirements for this and you need to basically make sure that um, the optimum sort of temperature for this is and I'm going to ask Ray to convert somewhere between 104 and 109 degrees Fahrenheit what's that's that about? That's a hot bath that's, that's pretty hot bath body temperature is 37 so, yeah, so it's just so under 104 is 41 yeah so just so. just yeah just under you know it's it's, it's a hot that's bath that's a hot bath um, but I think it's that thing of it relaxes you and, and I, I wondered whether so it burns your skin yeah, so or, or you get out of the bath and you cool down quickly uh, that could be more the effect. Uh, that's probably yeah. the effect. Yeah. Yeah. So it might just be middle of winter, go outside yeah. for 10 minutes. Is, is it just baths or does it also transport to saunas, which are, you know, in every home in like Finland and stuff? Well, I know, believe that. there's another study planned for saunas, okay. but uh, <laughs> at the moment, uh, the, the great people at University of Texas have, um, have fixated on baths, um, but I'm yeah. sure it will come out. I told you it was light. <laughs> yeah. I told you it was light. Anyway, I thought that was very funny um, because I, I'm not a big one for taking baths right before bed no. and I don't think I have the time no. to be sitting around in a bath just so I save 10 minutes later. Yeah. That doesn't seem like a good I mean, trade. that water bill, really? <sighs> just reckon the climate, especially yeah. if it's that hot. Yeah. Triple. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3RRR. Now, hopefully on the phone, we have Dr. Stephen Gensimer, who is the Senior Research Scientist for Optical Systems in the Industrial Innovation Program in the CSIRO. Stephen, can you hear us? Yes. Yes, hello. How's the weather in Adelaide? Um, we're lucky. It's very sunny today. I'm expecting rain tomorrow, so I have to finish hooking up a new rainwater tank before the rain comes so we can start filling it up. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you, as someone who had one of those many, many years ago, it's a great feeling when the first drops go in. You, 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 there's a sense of achievement, so I hope it, hope it works for you. <laughs> sure it will, yeah. Now, um, you, you're uh, heavily involved in sort of some of the satellite projects and so forth for CSIRO. And before we get into that, um, you mentioned in the information you sent through to me the space roadmap that, map that CSIRO has released. Can you give us just a few highlights of what's in that roadmap for CSIRO in Australia? Yeah, sure. Well, there's a, there's a, you know, we, we looked at a big range of different, um, of different opportunities in the space sector in the next, you know, decade or so. And, um, some of the highlights, I guess, were that, um, we have some real big opportunities in Earth observation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's, those are sort of the, the, the most, maybe the low hanging fruit, you could say. The, the the most near term possible uh, you know activities we, where we think we can get some economic wins, um, 
there's uh, a, a few more difficult challenges, which are also really exciting opportunities. One of them is working with other international partners on, you know, bigger, bigger uh, challenges like uh, mineral extraction on the moon and asteroids, which is an interesting opportunity for Australia because um, we can use robotics expertise and a lot of experience in automated mining through the mining industry um, to to create new opportunities for for businesses to make money and 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 build the space industry you know mm. um, out there so there, there are there are a lot of other opportunities, but those are sort of uh, some of the big highlights, I guess, from that roadmap. Uh, Stephen, this is Dr. Ray. in in the In the observation space, this is this is across the board. This is everything from fabricating satellite fleets and and doing innovative things there, all the way through to uh, data analysis, recovering data from satellites, and then all the processing to make that data useful for particular sectors. Is that correct? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's it's a very, uh, in a way, it's it's very similar to the kind of inter, uh, Internet of Things in the sense that um, you kind of fill the environment with a whole lot of sensors that are grabbing all kinds of information, um, you know, of different types from different types of measurements and combining them over uh, a network and then doing some machine learning in order to handle all this large amount of data and extract useful information. So in this case, you know, we're just doing it basically uh, with, we put some of the infrastructure into orbit and that makes things even more complicated because, um, of course, we can't get up there and fix things, so we have to make sure they work when we launch them. And then getting data back down from them is a lot more difficult than it is when you just have a 3G connection, for, for example. So, um, so I mean, I guess I think of it more as a, sort of a matter of taking this digital infrastructure, which is, we're, is expanding through all the sectors of the economy, and sort of uh, extending it and trying to make it more seamless um, in, in space as well as on, on the uh, combined between space and the ground. Hmm. Stephen, it's, it's interesting to me, one of the things um, that you sent through to me was the issue of actually getting very, very good sort of optical imaging technologies and that they weren't, they weren't as readily available as some of the other electronic um, components. I, I was a bit surprised to hear that, actually, because we've, we've come so far with imaging systems over the last sort of 20 years with cameras and so forth and what's available. What, what's, the, um, what's the go there? Is it, um, is it just that the environment's so hostile and those sorts of things haven't been, you know, built appropriately, or is it that we have very specific requirements? Well, it's interesting. It's... Um, there are exquisitely good uh, imaging systems that have been built and launched in space, but generally at very high expense. Mm. And the prices, the prices for optical instruments haven't dropped, um, you know, with this kind of Moore's law level that other electronic components that people are putting on CubeSats have, for example. So uh, I think it's partly because. Um, when you put optics in uh, in a in a satellite, you want things to be as big as possible. Optics don't don't do well with miniaturization the way electronics do generally, um, because in order to gather gather a lot of light, you need a large lens or a large telescope. And in order to have a high uh, amount of magnification, you need a long. 
focal length, which means a larger optical system. So you make it wide to get a lot of light and long to get a, a high magnification. And that really means they're always pushing up against the physical boundaries of the size of the satellite you have. And of course, that uh, you know, the bigger the satellite is, the cost goes up dramatically. So. And every mission, basically, people try to uh, try to optimize the parameters of the optical system as, as well as they possibly can to fit exactly the the imaging the imaging you know uh, targets that they have. And those are slightly different for every mission. So if you're looking for minerals, or you're looking at water quality, or looking at agricultural. Uh, you know, growth and, and productivity, then you have different imaging requirements and you basically want to customize your imaging system differently for all those things. And so that makes it extremely difficult for anybody to make a one-size-fits-all imaging system to, that you could mass-produce and sell to all the CubeSat users. Mm. I mean, the, the other thing there, too, is that, you know, optical systems tend to be heavy. Um, is there work going on to reduce that? Because I know there are some particular, particular sort of plastics and so forth that are being used more and more, but whenever you involve glass that's in most optical systems, I mean, this stuff is just really heavy. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, I mean, I guess I would say from in, 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 in terms of making building CubeSats, uh, the physical uh, volume is more of a restriction than the weight, but you know, it's definitely true that weight is a concern, and uh, uh, a lot of work is done to make lightweight, thin uh, metal mirrors because mirrors basically weigh way less than uh, than than lenses. Uh, so, there we have, for example, we have a bit of work going on in CSIRO right now to look at how we can use uh, better uh, specialized uh, material alloys, metal alloys, um, as the substrate for mirrors. Now, Stephen, in terms of um, CSIRO's uh, work here, I mean, what's, what's next on the agenda for you in terms of uh, your sort of push into this, tel- into this whole you know, field of space and the things you're doing? Well, right now we are... Um, Assembling and testing the first CubeSat, which will be launched um, next year, I think late 2020. Um, so we have an agreement from NASA that it will be launched on a, a supply mission to the International Space Station. So we're very excited about that. We just got confirmation of that uh, very recently. And so after that, um, we'll be building more more complicated uh, optical instruments that will go on larger satellites. So this first mission is what we call a 3U CubeSat. That means it's sort of about the size of a loaf of bread, or mm. you could say three liters uh, in volume. That's a fairly small uh, satellite. And so we're putting a, a fairly modest, and we, we have very t- tight time constraints. We're putting a fairly modest imaging system on that. Um, but we're building much more kind of uh, fully featured imaging system um, over the next three years with a big investment that we've gotten uh, from within CSIRO. So we have a $2 million project to set up a lab in Adelaide to develop satellite optics, and the first idea will be, uh, the first goal will be to build a hyperspectral imager, which would go in something like either a 6U or a 12U CubeSat um, to do Earth observing to benefit uh, agriculture, water quality, and and, uh, applications like that. 
Hmm. Look, it, it sounds fantastic. I mean, one final question for you: When they when NASA takes uh, takes one of these satellites up, and I know they take a lot up as part of these resupply missions, how do they do the launch? Because I can imagine it's not just kicking it out the door and hoping for the best. How do they how do they guarantee it's in the right orbit and the right location and so forth? Yeah, that's kind of funny. So for the for the low cost CubeSats, the general the general uh, way of launching them is basically they have them in a big rack, and um, they they may have you know a dozen or more CubeSats, and they kind of are ejected out of the spacecraft like a jack in the box. So there's basically yeah. a spring loaded um, you know component that just pushes them out one by one. So they all end up in a similar orbit, one following the other, um, and if they're small enough and low-cost ones, then generally they just go where they go. Uh, more expensive satellites will have a little bit of propulsion on them so that they can actually maneuver and change their orbits to some extent. Hmm. Look, it's, it's great stuff. It's great to hear CSIRO is so involved, and we're, we're talking to two of your colleagues next, actually, about uh, some of the other work going on. But, Stephen, thanks so much for chatting to us today, and uh, good luck with the ongoing work, and hopefully the launch will occur without incident. Thanks a lot. Pretty Thanks. good to talk to you. Thank you. That was Dr. Stephen Gensimer, who is the industri- in, from the Industrial Innovation Program at the CSIRO, working on their optical systems. Very cool. Three, triple, Now, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. In the studio with us now is Dr. Harold Yaniviak. Have I got that right, Harold? That's just perfect. Uh, it sounds like I got it really bad. Now, Harold, you're from the Australian Regenerative Medical Institute at Monash University, and we also have Dr. Andrew Laslett, who is from CSIRO. Uh, welcome, gentlemen. Good to have you in the studio. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, now we we sort of we have this space month where we decided we would you know do a bit of a tribute to the Apollo Apollo landing on on the moon and uh, our good colleague Fiona who uh, takes care of all the podcasting for us and used to be a member of the show actually years ago uh, was good enough to put your your names forward and um, we wanted to chat to you a bit about the, the sort of work you're doing and this is this is fascinating to me because it's um, it's around that whole area of how biology works in microgravity. So, Andrew, we might start with you. What's what's the sort of the, the core of the work here? What what's the the big thing you're trying to to work out by looking at cells and, and growth and so forth in microgravity? So the the core of the work that we're just really recently being funded to do by CSIRO is that we know that people in microgravity in space um, lose about one percent of their bone mass for every month they're in space Mm, mm. we know that at a gross level but we really don't understand much at all about the specifics of what's happening in those in those cells um in terms of microgravity in terms of radiation in terms of lots of different things so so the project we're interested in is really a we're interested in doing is a proof of concept project to start setting up a mini laboratory that we can use in space or initially on earth to in simulated microgravity to to look at at a really detailed level what happens to to cells mm. and we have, we have a scenario there where no doubt 
if people do the numbers in their head, you know, nine months to Mars, nine months back, we're in the 20% regime, which means you get out and you break your ankle kind of stuff. Is that, is that the thing? That's exactly um, the rationale why we're looking at it, so that um, you don't want to have to be in a wheelchair when you come out of uh, uh, being in a, on a space mission for a long period of time. And we're also hoping that... The, what we discover by looking at cells in a really detailed fashion mm. may be potentially useful for for patients with prolonged bed rest yeah. and, and things like that. Yeah, and a few weeks back on the show, actually, we talked about the degradation in muscle mass and you know, sarcopenia, which is a you know word that I learnt you know one day. Anyway, uh, and how how significant that is, and if you add that to the bone mass problem, you know, the two together, all of a sudden, you've got yourself a, a serious issue, which actually means you may not be able to even walk when you you get to somewhere like Mars. Absolutely. And, and the, the research we're planning to do, um, my lab works on pluripotent stem cells, so stem mm. cells that can turn into any cell of the human body. Yep. So when we get this set up uh, using bone as a proof of concept, we're really able to apply that to any cell in the human body to start asking these really detailed questions. Yeah. All right. I, 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 when you said simulated microgravity, the first thing I was thinking was the vomit comet. Where you know, it's the ship, the the planes that go up and down on on parabolic paths, but I don't think that's what you're talking about. So, what does a simulated microgravity look like for a cell? So, what we're going to use is a is a thing called a random positioning machine, which sounds like something out of Monty Python, I know, but it's so what it is is a is a and Harold, please jump in if I, I get this wrong. Um, what it is is a is a centrifuge that uses opposing forces in a random way. I'm I'm moving my hands around to show the people in the studio what's so happening, like, which is it, not good radio. We're, we're talking like a centrifuge on a three point axis thing, so it's tumbling about exactly. randomly in every direction, so that the so that the center point is there's it's there's there's very little gravity at any one point or coming from any one direction. Harold, uh, uh, yeah, and Harold, what does that look like for a cell? I mean, I've I've heard heard of these contraptions that they you know hang rats off and so forth to simulate low gravity. You know, this is some of the things they use for for muscle um, measurements, but but for cells. Yeah, I think um, our, our idea is to build a platform that we can put into the random positioning machine to have many different kinds of cells. This is something that Andy would provide. And there is, I think, a, a good real-world example of um, random positioning. So, for instance, imagine you have a, a spoon with a generous serving of Nutella mm-hmm. or honey, and uh, the Nutella or the honey starts to slide down the spoon. Mm-hmm. What you would do is you would turn it around oh, yeah. yep. and then um, sort of reverse the direction of the flow and um, and that's exactly what happens in the random positioning machine so you have this force pulling it down and you average it out by sort of keeping to turn the spoon yeah how do you make sure you know in a centrifuge of course as you spin around you you tend to want to head towards the end the the edges you know it's like being on a very fast you know merry-go-round where you know you're going to get thrown off eventually so there's there's a there's an element there that you have to counter as well how do you make sure all of these things sort of average out to zero yeah i think that's a really good point um dr shane i think the key is to turn the spoon really slow and i think you realize that if you think about the spoon with the nutella if you spin it too fast, um, you don't get the outcome that you yeah. want. And and what what does this look like in the lab physically? We are you talking about a single cell here, or is it many cells? What's the what's what's the goal? So you get with the machine that we are we're actually renting from a company in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you're able to do is to look at different sized cell flasks. But what we're looking at doing is setting up in really small micro wells to so that we can 
eventually once we have a the small mini lab we can do as many experiments as one at the same time as we can so mm. um we're uh, like hundreds to thousands of cells as okay. opposed to the normal cell culture where you can do millions and millions of cells. Yeah. So Stephen just before talked about big lenses and big optics and we're kind of doing the opposite. So we want small lenses and small optics mm. so that we can look at as many different cells as possible in that limited space that we have available. Yeah. So if you, um, I, I think bone was one of the, the, the targets there. Isn't bone something where you want the cells, I mean, bone grows when it's under stress and you want some type of applied stress field. Are you going to be able to do things like that in your microwells, or is it just looking at them in solution in, in, a, in a cell culture? Well, I think our, our first goal would be to find out what goes wrong if you remove that mechanical load that, okay. that, uh, that you mentioned. And that would then teach us what we could do to reverse to reverse that process. To, to reverse or to use uh, the osteoblast cells, the bone-forming cells, to look at maybe ways of stimulating regrowth of bone. It's it's fascinating to me um, how many experiments are sort of already sort of ongoing in this space. I mean, what what have we already learnt from, for example, what, over a decade now, the International Space Station? Because you know you, you hear all the time about people sending spiders up and looking at silk silk threads and so forth. But what, is there cellular level sort of stuff done on the ISS? There is, and there's NASA's really moving into um, organ on a chip type type mm. research what we're trying to do is, is in, in some ways a step past that to be able to look in real time at what's happening to the cells um as the the gravity or lack of gravity is having effects on yeah. the cells um and hopefully being able to look at uh multiple signaling pathways and detect what's happening in those signaling pathways but also be able to affect those signaling pathways so in terms of what's been done i suppose it's a, a tissue level experiment is the um I forgot his last name, Scott, who was in the International Space Station for 10 months, and his twin brother wasn't, who was also an astronaut, so it was a great, well, Dr. Chroma would love it, I'm going to use the word, epigenetics test comparing two people. Would, I know you can't do real-time signaling, but was there anything out of that study that helped or, or, or flagged or went, oh, that's interesting, other than just the bone loss part? So... I, I mean, he wrote a book on it, and there was, like, a lot of changes he had physiologically. But I, I know that's not cellular level. I don't know if that helped with a roadmap. For I think it, it helps in targeting because I did, they did a lot of RNA-seq studies on, the, on, the, on, on his samples and helped target the, the signaling pathways that we'd be interested in. Um, but um, it's a global-level look at what's going on as opposed to um, potentially using synthetic biology, which Harold's an expert in, um, looking at, at individual cells and, and how they're acting together and their, their signaling pathways. Yeah. Do, we, do we have a feel for where this is going to go? It, it's interesting to me because one of the things, of course, that you'll have to do is when you when you get some of the answers out here, we say, okay, well, how do we augment the cells in such a way that we can we can do something? You know, syn synthetic biology is all about this in the sense, you know, like how do you augment these cells in the human body so that you could actually maintain a person's health in in a journey, say, for example, to Mars? I mean, what what would that actually look like, Harold? Well, I think uh, we, we, we would mainly use the synthetic biology as a, as a tool to help us identify which signals we need to turn on in, in the body of a, in, in the human body. Yeah. And then probably your first choice would be to do that using, using pharmacology, using, using drugs. Yeah. But we first need to know what's the signal that uh, we want to control. 
Yeah. So you mentioned before, you know, motivation for this work, going to Mars, you don't want to get out and break an ankle. But when do we know when this actually becomes a problem? Like how much bone mass, for example, do you have to lose before it is a problem? Do people know know anything about that? So I'll take that in, in two parts. So um, we know that over a year after coming back from extended periods in space, people still have a, a lower bone density. So it, it's not a short-term effect that comes back and is fixed quickly by being back in normal Earth gravity and, and exercising. Um, the other thing we should say is that this, we've funded to do this work for three years. We're not going to solve everything mm. in three years, but, and what we're really hoping to do with the, with the mini laboratory that we're putting together is show proof of concept that it's a great way of experimenting and hopefully commercialize that through CSIRO, maybe through a spin-out company to look at, um, being a provider to anyone interested in doing biomedical research in microgravity or other extreme environments. And in fact, you can potentially use this to look at, um, the effects on cells as you re-enter the Earth and, and um, ex- mm. um, hypergravity as opposed to um, microgravity. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I find fascinating here is that there's so many areas to look at. So, as you say, the the, the intense gravity on, on liftoff or on, on return is, is incredible. The radiation levels in transit, uh, you know, you still hear people talk about the Van Allen Belt and so forth and these high radiation zones and, you know, how the devil do we survive them? And, uh, and then, and then just the extended period of reduced gravity being another one. So if you, if you are on Mars and you're at point eight of Earth's gravity for a year, what does that, you know, what does that look like? Especially after you've just traveled for nine months to get there and, you know, all of these things. Is, is it possible for us to, I mean, are people looking at those various elements separately or, or is it sort of, you know, how, how do you, how do you pull those apart? Cause they're all different problems. That's a great question. Um, are people talking to each other is really another way of asking yeah, that question. Yeah. And um, one of the things I really like about working at CSIRO is that we're starting to put together huge multidisciplinary teams to start mm. to a- a- attack these problems. Um, but what you're really talking about is a, more of an international um, uh, consortium of people working together and sharing results. And I, I hope that's the case. I'm, yeah. We're both, or well, I'm especially really new to um, applying what I know about stem cells to space. So, yeah. so yeah. I, I hope that's the case. Yeah, look, it, it sounds fascinating, guys. And I think um, if we can get all this working, um, it, will, it will help answer some questions. And, and the stem cells are such a good area to, to play with because, as you say, you can, you can look at any cell once this is working and see how it responds to these environments. So uh, very cool stuff. Thanks so much for coming in today. Uh, keep us informed as to, to what's going on. It's great to hear that, you know, this whole industry is sort of just coming alive in Australia and there's so much more going on. So thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, heaps. 102.7. We're back, and we've only got a few minutes left. Now, I wanted to ask you, Dr. Adler, because you've been to one of these climate conferences. Yes. I mean, what was the what was the big thing there? Was there something big and new, or it was more of the same doom and gloom? What happens at a climate conference oh, these yeah, days? Yeah, well, it is a bit of doom and gloom, I have to say. <laughs> depressed bunch of scientists together um no 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 look actually do you know what this one was super interesting because one of the big discussion points at this conference is in this area called what we call detection and attribution so kind of basically detecting climate change changes 
Yep. And saying, well, is it or is it not because of us? Right. Yeah, right. yeah. So which, is the, a big, which is a big deal. That's yeah. right. So it's kind of the science behind that. Um, yeah. and, and really using these really sophisticated, fantastic statistical methods combined with physical climate models and observations to kind of get at this. But of course, because this European heat wave that was completely yeah, unprecedented yeah. happened in the middle of it, the fantastic thing about the conference was that people were using some of these techniques to pull out some of this stuff in real time. Wow. So, yeah. you know, I mean, some of it wasn't with the observations, it was within, with forecasts that were going to happen. But, um, you know, people were looking at the likelihoods that this was, you know, exacerbated by human activity and mm. things. And, and um, you know, some of the... <laughs> Yeah, it was a bit scary. Some of the stuff that came back was, you know, you know, European heat waves like this can expect them one every five years on average. Right. In right. in the middle of the twenty first century. Yeah, so interesting stuff. The, yeah. the the question, you know, that I always have with this stuff is how much the um this sort of acceleration occurs. Mm. So you know, you hear sometimes about some of the melting that's occurring below mm. ice sheets and so forth, and say, so, okay, there's some melting there, mm. and you can work out what that melting level is. Mm. But then the accelerations in other areas that that causes yeah. are much harder to, you know, those non-linear connections Absolutely. are harder well, to predict. No, and, and it keeps happening. There was another article this week about a um, really detailed sonar mapping of the glaciers in Alaska mm, yeah, yeah. in one yeah, region so where the, the mm. melt rate was 100 times faster than what they expected. Mm. Mm. Well, I mean, um, I mean, this is one of the reasons why, you know, Antarctica is the, the sleeping giant that we still mm. know nothing about because mm. fundamentally it's being melted from below, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's being melted from below with all this, this warm water, but we actually don't know how warm that water is and getting underneath to measure that. Yeah, it's tough so stuff. Hard. Yeah. And and for me, the the thing that I find fascinating here is when you you know, and scary mm. is ice reflects a lot of light mm, and a lot of a lot of frequencies. Uh, ocean does not. That's the reason that ice looks white <laughs> and the ocean looks dark. Mm-hmm. And so the Earth as a whole's ability to reflect sunlight mm-hmm. changes. You know, it's like with clouds as well. Yep, you know, right. if you change those things that look white yep. and you have fewer of them, mm-hmm. then your ability to reflect yep. the sun's yep. you know light yep. is is yep. lowered. And and that's that's got to be very hard to predict what that will look like. Yeah, I mean the whole the whole idea of this is what we call um, basically it's like an ice reflectivity feedback. Mm. So you know it's kind of a snow Snowball effect, if mm. you will, pardon the pun. But, um, you know, it's... It, a melting <laughs> snowball effect. Yes, exactly, a melting snowball effect. So, I mean, that side of it is, is not so hard to quantify, but the, the knock-on effects and the acceleration that you're talking about, that's the difficult right. part. Yeah, so. I, I, I'd love to be a fly in the wall at some of these uh, conferences yeah. and just... just gauge the mood and, yes. and that way I'd know how I should feel you know because yeah, like, well, you, you see the media version of it but, <laughs> but it's I can imagine there's um just the understanding of the dynamics though yeah. must be going up at yeah. an incredible rate oh huge and there's so, so much being done in this space which is fantastic but it's also yeah it can it can be a little bit depressing and scary I yeah, have yeah. to say we we do we do drown our sorrows a little <laughs> yeah and, and I'm guessing uh, for everyone out there listening who uh, you know there are three people who don't believe in climate change that are listening right now um <laughs> I'm assuming there's no session for those people giving those talks. No. Look, we do have the occasional person rock up, but they're usually torn down pretty quickly with scientific arguments because they're not, um, you know, they're not exactly... Yeah. Robust. And my, my suspicion is most climate scientists would love to be wrong. Oh, we would love to be wrong. Oh <laughs> yeah. my gosh. If we could. would totally yeah. love to be wrong, but unfortunately, no, evidence doesn't. is pointing in the other direction. So. Anyway, Ailey, thanks so much. It's good to see you again, and we'll see you again in a, in a few weeks, no doubt. Dr. Ray, good to have you in Good to be back. And we'll see you again soon, I think, um, next week. I next think. week? Yeah. Yep. Uh, it is only, I think, three weeks until our radiothon. So, um, Yay! 
we're going to have some fun with that, but uh, we've, we've got a lot of uh, science to broadcast between now and then. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a fantastic Sunday, and we will chat to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.